Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. This is Brandon Smith on the board of directors here at CBR. I'm joined by Winston Hopman, one of our other directors, and Gavin Ortland, one of our fellows. I think this is the first time we've had a fellow hop on the CBR podcast, so you are you are the uh, introductory fellow, Gavin, so no pressure at all there. <laughs> Part of an elite group. Hopefully I won't be the last as well. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Uh, CBR is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. If you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Baptist Renewal. Uh, and as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe uh, on our YouTube channel there if you're watching this on YouTube or subscribe on the podcast feed. So today we're going to talk about Anselm's Why God Became Man. And this is the uh, sixth book in our reading classics or theology classics reading plan that we've been doing this year. Uh, so if you are following along there, uh, that's where we're at here in the month of June. And uh, if you haven't uh, caught on to the book reading plan yet, you're welcome to do that. You can go in the show notes. There's a link there and uh, you can jump in anytime and start reading. We've already got a podcast recorded and YouTube videos recorded for the past books. If you want to catch up, if you're behind, uh, be great to have you join in, give us some feedback, let us know how things are going. So today we're going to talk about Anselm. We brought on Gavin because uh, he is probably the most knowledgeable person about Anselm, at least that I know, and is a, a legitimate Anselm scholar doing his PhD work uh, in Anselm as published on Anselm. So I thought, uh, who better than to bring on uh, Gavin today? So what we're going to do is give a real high level kind of summary of the book uh, for those who haven't read the book before, who need some kind of background and uh, kind of a summary and some, some outline for the book. We're going to try to do that today. Uh, so, Gavin, why don't you start by giving just a little bit of a, of a biography on Anselm, who he is, maybe some uh, big ideas about his life and thought and where he fits in church history in terms of where he's writing and any of those kind of things that might be helpful. Okay, so super brief on his life and then just a couple aspects of his thought that are probably good to highlight kind of as an entry point for Curdeus Homo. Um, so he was born in 1033 in northern Italy. He uh, left home. People think he quarreled with his father and, and ran away, uh, went over the Alps and into what we call France and became a monk at a place called Beck. And he was there for many, many years, eventually became the abbot of the monastery there. That's where he wrote his first works and uh, became very famous as a theologian, eventually became the Archbishop of Canterbury and died in 1109. Um, just maybe three things about his thought that are useful to mention, probably the things he's most famous for. One would be what people call the ontological argument, which is an argument for God's existence, kind of a more obscure argument for God's existence. And uh, he's the first one to um, promote that in a book called The Proslogion. And that's where my research has been, and uh, especially looking at the other parts of the Proslogion and the whole Proslogion. Uh, he's also famous for what we'll talk about today, his view of the atonement, which was hugely influential historically. Sometimes it's called the satisfaction view of the atonement. And that's in the book we'll talk about, Kurt Deus Homo, Why God Became Man, or sometimes Why the God-Man. And then he's also famous for his theological method or epistemology, which just means how we know God. And sometimes that's summarized as faith-seeking understanding. And that's been hugely influential. You can see the influence of that on someone like Karl Barth, for example, who draws hugely from Anselm. And it's um, it's just, I'm very appreciative of that as well. It's a way of approaching the task of theology where it's not uh, reason 
seeking understanding, but reason is still very elevated. He's got a very high view of reason. I mean, he's got about as high view of reason as you can imagine. He thinks mm -hmm. it's uh, reflective of the image of God within us. He's very, you know, he uses very dense argumentation, but it's faith seeking understanding. So it's, uh, it's you're not starting from a neutral standpoint. Uh, reason is a tool within the context of faith. Uh, so it's a bit of a, a more nuanced uh, use of reason in that sense. So those are some of the things he's famous for. Okay, so he has this conversation here, by the way, you'll see this name Boso or uh, Bozo, uh, which is funny because Bozo means like dumb or silly, you know, which is kind of the point, right? Uh, Gavin, do you have any thoughts on whether Bozo is a real person or not? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to scratch my memory and see if you know, so my dissertation on NSA was five years ago. <laughs> so it's like so much of this morning, I was trying to remember things. Um, my memory is that that uh, there is discussion of someone by that name. And so my my memory is, yes, he's a real person, but I really can't recall if that's correct or not. Yeah, because it is kind of a device that's used, you know, in a lot of these kind of works where you have this question and answer type thing. But I love uh, Bozo. If he's made up by Anselm, I mean, he's just the perfect person. Like, you know, but he's like, you are correct. I cannot even refute that. I have nothing to say to that point. So I love how- This is, uh, a, good, this is a way we should do all of our theological works. Yeah. Come up with someone, give them a dumb name, and then make them, make them just praise everything we say throughout the book. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, I've done plenty of talking. Winston, you want to you wanna kind of start us off here on some questions for Gavin or some thoughts that you have as we as we get going on the book here? Yeah, so you mentioned, uh, you know, one of those three key features of his thought is his theory of atonement. And so um, maybe you could flesh out uh, what he has to say about that within the context of the book and, 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 and maybe a few passages if you want to. I, I have a few in mind as well. But, but maybe before even looking at a particular passage, just unpack the rationale, the logic of his, his, his theory of the atonement as it unfolds in the, the work Cur Deus Homo. Okay, and if people want to get, if, if they want to do like a super quick uh, entry point into uh, Cur Deus Homo, a good section to read would be 2.6. It's like, you could read it in like 30 seconds. It's really brief. And some people have argued, and I, I'm sympathetic to this, that that's kind of the climactic moment in the mm -hmm. argument. So Curtius Homo has two uh, books, um, and the first one seems to be more responding to criticisms, and the second one is more constructive. So in the second book, you get a little bit more of the, the details of what satisfaction atonement is. And the basic idea is that sin has failed to give God his due. Sin has robbed God of the honor that he deserves. And so uh, the solution to sin must repay that debt. And uh, that's, that's what uh, Christ has done for us. Um, so in some ways, um, Curtis Homo is kind of like a commentary on Chalcedon, uh, Chalcedon being the fifth century council where you get uh, Christology uh, unpacked in terms of two natures that are not uh, intermixed with each other. So you've got a, uh, Jesus is the God man, he's um, fully divine, but also fully human. And that doesn't result in some kind of hybrid you know, so these two divine and human are distinct. And you really see that in 2.6 of, of Curtis Homo, where the, the whole argument is you need both of those. The idea is, and you see this, I think it's in uh, C.S. Uh, Lewis's Mere Christianity. He kind of summarizes this. But the idea is that uh, humanity owes the debt. 
but only God can pay the debt. So you need somebody who's both human and divine to actually solve the problem. That, that's a real brief overview. But the only other thing I'd say is, I think one of the great dangers with atonement is pitting one theory or model against another unnecessarily. And so this is a great concern I have with how people treat Anselm. And we just mentioned a moment ago before we started recording how much he's caricatured and it happens over and over. And one of the things that happens is people um, too tightly define one of these models and then they pit it against another one when they're potentially harmonious. And I would just encourage people also, in addition to reading 2.6, to read through just the chapter titles. Simply reading through the chapter titles shows you that the satisfaction model is not at odds with some of the emphases in other atonement theories. Um, what's called Christus Victor, you know, that, that Christ has defeated Satan uh, in the atonement, that's present. I mean, you, you don't even need to read the book. You can just read the chapter titles and see that that's affirmed in Curtis Homo, that uh, moral influence theory, the idea that God has uh, shown his love for us through the atonement. Again, it's in the chapter titles. Um, and then if you read more carefully too, sometimes people pit satisfaction theory of atonement against a penal substitution as though it's it's Christ paying uh, back God's honor, but not propitiating his wrath. But I think those also are potentially harmonious. And we do have discussion of God's wrath in Per Deus Homo. So I would just want to alert readers to that danger of uh, a false dichotomy, because satisfaction is kind of the emphasis in Anselm, but it seems to me that it's harmonious with many other ways of thinking about the atonement as well. And I as we keep going, I'd love to say more about that with respect to recapitulation as well. Yeah, go ahead and, and move on to that. That was actually exactly where my mind was going, was kind of taking that step out and moving through sort of his methodology and presuppositions about atonement and how these all fit. Okay, well, I'll say something brief about recapitulation and then whatever you guys want to add on to this too. Um, but so recapitulation is the idea that's often associated with the church fathers more, especially with Irenaeus, mm -hmm. that... Um, in the incarnation and by extension in the entire incarnate work of Christ and life of Christ, God uh, restored human nature. Um, what basically what Irenaeus and Athanasius and others said and Anselm says is that if Adam and Eve had passed the test and they hadn't sinned, human nature would have been translated into immortality. Uh, what, what Anselm calls blessed immortality. Uh, so that's what will happen to us at the final resurrection. Um, and uh, basically, Anselm says, God did that at the incarnation. And uh, that's recapitulation. So this is another way of thinking about atonement. Um, you know, the one of my burdens with the atonement is it's bound to be multifaceted because the problem it's solving is multifaceted. So we have to be careful to avoid kind of either or thinking when... Um, it, it, we're, we're dealing with a multifaceted reality here. So anyway, the big idea is people often pit Anselm against recapitulation. But I would encourage people as they're reading through Curtis Homo just to be on the lookout for recapitulation. Any language about how the incarnation restores human nature, it's all over the place. And it's so yeah. interesting that this Western supposedly you know, obsessed with kind of a juridical way of thinking. That's the caricature of Anselm, that everyone, you know, you get all these new atonement books coming out that are trying to get beyond Anselm and this feudal, rationalistic, 
uh, legalistic way of thinking about the atonement. But if you read Curtis Homo, the like just read through the preface and the commendation. The whole explicit purpose of the book is to say, here's how God restored human nature to happiness. Here's how God basically did recapitulation. That's the purpose. And within that context, you have to go for a while before you actually get to Christ's death and satisfaction. So the satisfaction comes in the larger context of recapitulation. And that's really interesting. And it's just so contrary to the stereotype of, of Anselm. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah that theme of... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, that theme of re recapitulation, uh, it, it jumped out at me um, in uh, the section um, 2.8, where he's talking about the correspondence between Eve and Mary and the way in which, you know, the, uh, the woman's part of the virginal role in the origin of, of sin or the uh, corruption of human nature and then the restoration of that through Eve. And that prompted me to then go back and look at it. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, grounded in that, that new Adam, Christ as a new Adam idea, that, that theme just runs and, and throughout the entire work. Yeah, which is what's helpful about the book, too. You know, you do kind of get this biblical theology, basically, which is going to be uh, running through a lot of these ideas. Because really, I think, as Gavin, you're pointing out a little bit, if you start doing biblical theology, you start looking at the, the unity of Scripture and the biblical storyline, you're going to run across these different theories of atonement, quote unquote, right? Um, but what I think is interesting too, that you brought up is, you know, uh, recapitulation, for example, gets, is given to Irenaeus oftentimes, right? Um, but if you've been following the book, the book reading plan that we've been doing, you've read Irenaeus, you've read uh, Athanasius on the incarnation, you're running across all the same type of ideas, right? Because one of the things that he brings out is recapitulation, which again, you see in these other authors, uh, this idea that uh, because God is good, because God is holy, because God is unchangeable, the only thing he really could do was to come and save us. So Athanasius makes this argument, right? If God is good and if God has promised to have a relationship with us and we have lost that relationship, the only answer for God is to do what he said he was going to do, which is have a relationship with us, right? So you have this kind of language. And so in 2.7, so we're all floating here, right? In this same spot here, 2.6, 2.7, 2.8. Uh, he says uh, on, at the end, uh, near the end of uh, 2.7, talking about why did God become man, right? That's the big question. And he says, um, he says, uh, sorry, uh, for he cannot do this. Uh, uh, sorry, in order, therefore, that the God man should bring about what is necessary. It is essential that the same one person who will make the recompense should be perfect God and perfect man. For he cannot do this if he is not true God, and he has no obligation to do so if he is not true man. Given, therefore, that it is necessary for a God-man to be found in whom the wholeness of both natures are kept intact, right? Fully God, fully man. It is no less necessary for these two natures to combine as wholes in one person in the same way as the body and the soul coalesce into one human being. For otherwise, it cannot come about that one and the same person may be perfect God and perfect man. And I love Bozo. I am happy. I like everything you thing. say. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you do, I mean, that, that is, you could put that in on the incarnation from Athanasius and it, it's the same exact argument, right? Anselm is drawing on the tradition and drawing on the things that have already been said about the fact that God, and he says this back in, uh, in uh, beginning of book two, that because God is holy and unchangeable, he is going to do the thing he said he would do. And he says that it takes somebody greater than man to save man, right? We can't save ourselves. So you need God, but also you need a true man to be the true sacrifice to recapitulate Adam's story. And so therefore you've got fully God, fully man. Otherwise you can't make sense of salvation. 
Yeah, it, it, just continuing with that, it's a similar a similar thing is I've I've uh, parsed out some sentences from Irenaeus's Against Heresies and from Anselm's Curtius Homo that are almost the exact same, mm-hmm. and the, basically what they're saying is. Uh, just as it is fitting, or just as through one man, human nature was degraded, it was fitting that through one man, human nature would be exalted. And that's basically recapitulation. And Mm -hmm. it's just so clear in both. So it's interesting, because I think uh, just for people watching this to know kind of the state of the literature, honestly, this to me might be one of the most um, flagrant examples of caricature that I know of in terms of just how frequently Anselm is the seen as the thing to get beyond. And uh, so like one, one taxonomy that's very popular that uh, Gustav Alain, the uh, Lutheran theologian in 1931, popularized the Christus Victor view. And he mm-hmm. kind of categorized it like this. He said, you've got the objective models of atonement that are Anselmian. They're objective because the primary uh, direction of the atonement is to God, to do something for God. Then you've got the subjective models of the atonement that are Abelardian from Peter Abelard, and they're subjective because the primary direction is to do something to humanity. It's trying to change us. And then he presents that as like this antithesis we've got to get beyond. So he offers Christus Victor as the way to get beyond that. The direction of atonement is towards Satan and evil and sometimes death. And there's all these new Christus Victor models that are coming out that criticize Anselm as being... Um, to, you know, coming from his feudal context, legalistic, juridical, even violent. A lot of people are saying that Anselm's model of the atonement caters toward abuse and victimization and this kind of thing. So um, it's just good for people to be aware of the background context as they're reading this book, because I think what they'll find is this is so different than the stereotypes and the caricatures that are out there. It's so expansive. I mean, for example, the lengthiest chapter in the book is about angels. Mm-hmm. His his interests in this in this book are go way beyond just kind of the problem of guilt. The problem of guilt and satisfaction it has a much larger context for him. I think what's helpful too, and this is a, this is true both of Anselm and everybody we've covered so far. When you think about popular iterations of atonement theories, it's often the case that they become so detached from the doctrine of the incarnation. So they, they, they lose those dimensions, the, the recapitulation dimension. Um, but they also can, I think, result in some, you, you hinted at it, you know, the, the caricatures of, of, of abuse. In, in some cases, popular level notions of atonement actually kind of do present themselves as such. And one of the things that I appreciate about um, Anselm, you know, rooting his, his his doctrine of the atonement being rooted in this Chalcedonian Christology is what that means for the relationship of the father, the roles of the father and the son within this model, not, not, a, not a model where it's the, you know, the father sending off his son, you know, as a form of uh, cosmic child abuse has been the phrase used perhaps unfairly, mm-hmm. but um, in some cases there are actual popular level notions that kind of verge on that. And so there's just one passage, and maybe you could comment on this. This is on um, this is from one nine. This is page two seventy seven. If readers are using the uh, Oxford World's Classics volume, he says, "God therefore did not force Christ to die, there being no sin in him. Rather, he underwent death of his own accord, not out of an obedience consisting in the abandonment of his life, but out of an obedience consisting in his upholding of righteousness so bravely." 
and pertinaciously that as a result, he incurred death. And he goes on in several other places to talk about the, the unity of the father and the son. There's a climax, if I remember, in like 220, where he just reflects on the beauty of God's mercy and justice working together in this, you know, coordinated um, uh, relationship and effort. Uh, so is, is that part of the caricature? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it those misreadings in which the father is kind of pitted against the son or seen as sending the son potentially against his will or out of some necessary compulsion or something like that? Yes, uh, that seems to me to be um, one of the problems with this charge of cosmic child abuse is that it it doesn't really appreciate the Trinitarian nature of the atonement. And what flows out of that, as you're drawing attention to, is the son's willingness and initiative in the atonement. Uh, even in, in the language of John, he says, no one takes my, my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And that's a point of disanalogy with child abuse, obviously, and also just the redemptive nature of the son's suffering is another. So th there's actually several points of disanalogy between the atonement and child abuse that I think make that charge unfair. As I've wrestled with that, I've tried to, you know, take that concern really seriously. And I, I also appreciate what you were saying, Winston, of just there are lots of popular level presentations of the atonement that do uh, cater towards that or um, insufficiently warn us against a reading that could um, push in that direction. So we have to be aware, but I think, you know, at its best, these objective models of the atonement, satisfaction and penal substitution aren't uh, vulnerable to that, that particular charge. And there's also the related charge of violence. And this is in like Denny Weaver and some other contemporary proponents of the atonement, you get this charge that Anselm's account is violent. Part of the challenge with that is, because what he's saying is that it promotes a, pa a passive submission to violence. And uh, I guess to my mind, that's there's really no model of the atonement that can avoid the fact that there's a sense in which the atonement just is violent, right? It, it happens by death. And Isaiah 53 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So I think to me, pushing into the Trinitarian nature of that helps us not fall into to error. Yeah, and that's where, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, what Winston read there, and he'll say, you know, this self-giving of God, that God has willingly done this, the Father and Son uh, have willingly done this. Um, he says over, uh, let's see, I just uh, I just had it and then uh, lost it here. Um, I gotta remember if this is book one or book two. You can see how uh, I really tried to prepare for this and then uh, showed up and can't remember where anything is. Uh, yeah, book one, uh, over in the long chapter of book 10, um, he says, uh, it is most fitting that such a father should agree with such a son if he has desire which is praiseworthy in being conducive to the honor of God and useful in being aimed at the salvation of mankind, something which could not come about in any other way. And so he does build on this doctrine of God's unchangeableness, his immutability, and saying that, that yeah, if you think of a normal father-son relationship, this would feel kind of weird, right? But if you think about a divine father and son who are, who are uh, equal in glory, who are equal in immutability, and who have this uh, shared will, right, that it would be fitting for that type of father and son to do something like this, right, because they have this, um, this shared character, for lack of a better word, shared attribute of self-giving, of love, of goodness. They, they have made this promise to mankind. It's not like the father made this promise, 
and the son, you know, was, was, you know, playing video games in his bedroom. And then the father was like, Hey son, I need you to come out here and go mow the yard for me or, or fix something for me. Right No, Like this is a, this is not uh, some sort of divine council where they sat around and tried to talk about this stuff. This is who God is. And so the agreement is uh, built into uh, his doctrine of God, right? That he assumes that this is the case. Mm-hmm. Another thing that, that Winston mentioned earlier that I think is helpful just to really draw out is the importance of having the whole narrative sketch of Christ's incarnate and even ascended uh, work. And uh, Anselm, with the recapitulation emphasis, has got a lot to say about just the incarnation itself. And this has been my great journey on these things. It's been so fascinating to explore. Growing up, you tend to just think of it like this, that Jesus's death was salvific. His resurrection was necessary because we know in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not dead, if Christ is not raised, our faith is futile. But basically, it's just, it's just necessary to kind of prove the death or prove his deity, you know, that kind of thing. And one of the things that I think people like Irenaeus Anselm, Athanasius, with this idea of recapitulation, started to push us into is looking at the whole narrative flow of Christ's incarnate and ascended work and how it really all has to hang together. You can't abstract his death out of the broader narrative context. His resurrection is salvific. There's many other aspects of his incarnate and ascended work that are also salvific. There's a sense in which his ascension is salvific. There's a sense in which his intercession in heaven now is salvific. His second coming is spoken of as salvific. And then even his incarnate life. And just, uh, there, I, I would say, I, I believe there's a sense in which that is salvific. It's not just kind of getting you to the cross. And, and if you make a hard line division between Christ's life and his death, we have to ask the point of, well, where's the cutoff? Like, at what point does he start to save us as opposed to just preparing to save us? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, is it like when the nails go into his wrists or is it when he's the crown of thorns goes on? You know, it's like, and so even the Protestants, Calvin and Luther spoke of Christ's death as the climactic moment of a larger exchange. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been helpful for me to think about. And I think that just leads us a little, little bit, I don't want to take away from Christ's death as central, but just seeing the nuances of how it fits in the larger context. I think a helpful place are the first few chapters of book two. Where in, in chapter one, he's going to argue that uh, man, humanity is destined for a life of blessedness. And it would, it, it would reach that state of blessedness through the proper exercise of reason in discerning right and wrong and choosing the right. Um, and that in turn required an original state of righteousness or, or innocence. Uh, and so, but he builds that up to the point where he talks about the resurrection. And when he gets to the resurrection, he says, hence, there is proof that there is to be at some time a resurrection of the dead. For if a man is to be restored in perfection, he ought to be reconstituted as the sort of being he would have been if he had not sinned. In other words, the state of blessedness that that Adam and Eve were created for, that humanity was created for, was a state lived out in flesh um, as bodily creatures. And so picking up that theme of recapitulation for, for them to truly mature and to reach that the destination of their salvation is to reach a place in which they are reconstituted as uh, physical, physically incorruptible um, human beings, creatures, uh, enjoying that state of blessedness in that condition. So, Yeah, Gavin, I, I'm interested to hear 
uh, a little bit more of your thoughts too on um, all of this atonement talk we've been doing, which is so crucial to the book. Um, you know, the, the idea that, that God owes something to the devil, right? There's just some satisfaction that the devil uh, is due or something like that. That's one of the reasons satisfaction theory gets critiqued, right? As, as though, you know, the devil owns us or something and God is just this passive, uh, you know, person or he has to go pay, you know, he's like Liam Neeson and taken, you know, he's got to go get his, go get his family back or whatever. Um, now he says very clearly in this book, uh, God owes the devil nothing but punishment, right? So he, he clarifies some of that actually, if you read it, but maybe you could expand a little bit on in this work and maybe even in the broader uh, of Anselm's works, which you're familiar with, how does he talk about the recompense or the satisfaction that is owed to the devil, owed to God? How does that relationship work for Anselm in terms of in terms of the satisfaction theory and kind of the broader atonement conversation? Yeah, I think, and I'm just looking here at the chapter titles to see if I can see where it is. And it's not popping out at me, but he does talk about um, the uh, defeat of Satan at some point here, and I'm, I'll keep looking for it. But the main thing that I would, if you guys see it, you can point it out. But the, the main thing I'd say is this, this idea of uh, what's sometimes called a ransom theory of the atonement, that the, um, the thrust of Christ's atoning work was to Satan to pay the ransom to him. Mm -hmm. You somewhat get a little bit in the Chronicles of Narnia. And that's been part of my uh, research in the atonement is trying to um, kind of see what are the models of the atonement that are present in Narnia, because that's been so influential as a children's story. And it's kind of interesting to ask kind of how Aslan's death there, you know, what C.S. Lewis's understanding that's, and so you see a little bit of that idea because it's to the white witch that Aslan mm -hmm. dies. But I think that's a view that is present in the church prior to Anselm that Anselm's correcting in this book. And he's saying, no, it's not to Satan, it's to God. The, mm -hmm. the, the payment is given to God. He's the one who deserves payment of honor uh, that was robbed through sin. So um, I think that's basically the, the narrative I would, I would tell. Um, you got ransom that's present in the church prior to Anselm. Anselm satisfaction theory is the corrective of that yeah. saying the object of the payment is not Satan, but it's rather God. Yeah, and sometimes those get conflated a little bit. Um, I like that you said Narnia too. I always use that example in class when I'm talking about um, where you know the white witch is standing there and she kind of smirks whenever Ans whenever uh, Anselm Aslan uh, says. If they named him Anselm, this would have made this a lot easier actually. But Aslan, uh, you know, he says like he's going to die in Edward's stead, right? And she has that smirk on her face. And I always tell the students, you know, that duping of the devil that you see in some of the church history. You know, he's so prideful to think that he's won. That he is owed something or that he can take something and actually uh the truth is is that he, he he does have no power at the end of the day right and that's when he says you know don't quote the the uh magic to me i was there when it was written this kind of idea of you don't actually understand what's happening you're prideful enough to think that you do but you actually don't so i think that's a that's a that narnia one's a helpful one that i found uh even with students trying to explain some of the ransom satisfaction how some of that interaction with god and the devil uh work so yeah, C.S. Lewis doesn't always get it right, but I think that's a that's a that's one of the good ones. Yeah, and just a quick follow up: if people want to learn, read more about Anselm's corrective of the ransom theory, they can look at Book One, Chapter Seven, One Point Seven, in my translation, which I'm I have a little different copy. This is Thomas Williams' uh, edition, but it says the title of the chapter is that the devil had no just claim on humanity, and why it seems that he had such a claim, thus requiring God to liberate humanity in this way. So that's where he's kind of explicitly saying the devil didn't have that 
claim. And just also on Narnia, the other thing people do with Narnia is they use that as an example to say, and I've seen this in multiple books, look, um, C.S. Lewis is advocating Christus Victor, the object of, uh, in, in the sense of it's Christus Victor rather than penal substitution or satisfaction or anything like that in Narnia. Yeah. But the problem with that is Aslan makes it very clear that the ultimate reason why he has to die is not the witch's claims, but the, the emperor beyond the sea and his uh, magic, deep magic from the dawn of time and what's written on the scepter uh, of him which I think is kind of representative of like God's law. So it's really not true to say that in Narnia, the object of Aslan's death is just to the witch. That's circumstantially the case, but ultimately it's because of the emperor across the, the sea, i.e. God the Father. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, I think, a good point to bring up. Um, one of the themes throughout this book, uh, one of the, the words you'll find, at least in the English translation, is lawlessness. Um, I think in some cases we can think, and here the, uh, the editor's introduction is helpful. We tend to think of honor at, or dishonor as a form of personal offense, as if, you know, God was merely offended and he had to save face. But much of what Anselm says has to do with God's role as the creator, the sustainer, the, the, the lawgiver, uh, and the one who maintains the created order. And um, part of the argument is if, if God doesn't do anything but um, excuse sin through an act of mercy without uh, punishing it, then you have lawlessness. You have disorder, almost a, a movement towards non-being in a way. Um, so there's more there, a lot, a lot, something much more substantive than just, you know, what we tend to think about as, as dishonor. Yes, and that, that's worth really emphasizing, I think. Because people sometimes think of, oh, if God's honor is so important, does this mean God has a kind of ego <laughs> or, you know, something like that? But it's really not that. Anselm has such a robust view of sin. I mean, I, if you, people read through uh, 1.21, this is where you get the famous passage about um, you have where, where it said you have not yet come to grips with how serious sin is. Mm -hmm. and that's a famous quote from this book. Um he, he sees sin as a major problem, and he even goes so far as to say, basically, the context of this chapter is he's saying it's better that the entire world, and then he goes further and says every possible world should cease to exist than that the slightest sin occur. Mm. <laughs> it's like, no. you know, sin is so serious a problem in his mindset. And that, together with his robust view of divine honor, is so important, I think are really helpful corrective to us in the modern West. Because I know this has been my experience where we just tend to not have as robust a view of sin or of God's glory and God's honor. And Anselm is just in a different world. And I find he, he helps change my categories and he helps me see some of the blind spots of my context and what my instincts are because I'm a modern Western person. So I think Anselm is really helpful to challenge us in, in some of those, help us to feel the seriousness of sin, which sometimes we can lack that sense in our context. Hi Gavin, I think we've already, uh, we're already running up on time here, surprisingly enough. Um, but what are some, uh, if you could give readers, listeners, you know, a couple of takeaways, what are some uh, major things you would definitely want them to see in this work, uh, some things they need to understand about Anselm's theology and who he is. What, what would be just a handful of 
things you'd really want to get across as they as they work through this other than uh, or even to recap kind of what we've talked about so far. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, just a couple things maybe that I could just flag for people to be thinking about as they're reading. One is the word fittingness. Um, Anselm often argues on the basis not just of what is absolutely logically necessary, though he does argue on that basis as well, but sometimes he argues on the basis of what is fitting. So like his argument for the virgin birth is that it's fitting because there's four ways God could make a human being from a man alone. That's how Eve was made from neither a man nor a woman. That's how Adam was made from both a man and a woman. That's how everybody else is made, but there's only one other option from a woman alone. <laughs> and so that's why we have the virgin birth. Now, um, whether you, whatever you think about that, it's interesting, the criterion of fittingness. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that is kind of how Anselm thinks. What is fitting? What is harmonious? He's kind of got an aesthetic or beauty-oriented way of, of reasoning, which is interesting, something to pay attention to. Um, I would say pay another thing to think about is the ultimate purpose of this book is to basically say, here's the patristic consensus let's examine it and see if it makes sense. Um, that's why at the beginning in the commendation to Pope Urban II, he's saying, uh, remoto Christo, Christ having been set aside. Let's argue as if Christ, and what he's basically saying is, let's not argue from the gospels. Let's not argue from authoritative texts. Let's just argue from reason and see if this is fitting, see if it makes sense, what we already believe. And so that's just another thing to kind of bear in mind as you're reading that this is why you're not going to find, um, you know, just an explicit appeal to Augustine or something like that. So, well, Augustine, because in his other books, sometimes he'll just do that. I'll say, Augustine says this, don't question Augustine. <laughs> That's like, that settles it, you know. But, but here he's trying to tease out the reason of faith. Um, it's interesting with that how much emphasis there is on mystery and on worship throughout the book. He often will say, many times you'll get to a point where he'll just say, you know, we can't understand this. Human reason can't go there. So we just worship God. Mm. <laughs> so uh, again, I think that undermines the charge of rationalism against him. Um, and then I would say, you know, the other thing to just be looking at is kind of how do you see the full sketch of Christ's incarnation and atoning work all fitting in a larger picture or worldview for Anselm? Because it, it's it's not just asking kind of how are human beings recognized reconciled to God, which is the question of atonement. It's asking that, and he's got a very serious view of sin, but it's asking in a larger purpose, as we've drawn attention to, of the resurrection, the ultimate purpose of humanity, that God wants to achieve this state where human nature will arrive upon blessed immortality, what we might call the resurrection. So, um, yeah, so that just seeing, kind of trying to think it as expansively as possible mm -hmm. as you read, kind of what's the, what's the alt, and, and that's why things like angels come up in this book. It has such a, a wide vision for what Christ is actually doing. So those are just a few kind of things to note as, as people go and be on the lookout for. And other than that, just to enjoy it, because it's a really interesting book. And it's, again, so different from the stereotypes and um, I think people will find it to be kind of a, a, an approach to the atonement that is very sensitive to beauty um, and is very kind of fluid and expansive and, and wraps around categories um, as opposed to the stereotypes of it being so narrow. So I think, I think 
people will really find it an enjoyable read. Winston, any final thoughts from you on, on the book? That's it. No, just to thank Gavin for being with us. This is, I, I mentioned this beforehand. I felt like I was going to get a master class on Anselm <laughs> for free. So it's been great. We'll make you pay for it somehow or another. So. Right. All right. Well, thank you guys uh, so much for being on uh, the podcast with me today. We're going to end with 2 Corinthians 13, 13, as we always do. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.